0: Section 56 of Volume 1A of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1A, Section 56 appendix two part four it was usual to pay high fines in order to gain the king's good will or mitigate his anger in the reign of henry the second gilbert the son of fergus fines in nine hundred and nineteen pounds nine shillings to obtain that prince's favor william de Chatain, a thousand marks that he would remit his displeasure in the reign of henry the third the city of london fines in no less a sum than twenty thousand pounds on the same account the king's protection and good offices of every kind were bought and sold robert grislet paid twenty marks of silver that the king would help him against the earl of montaigne in a certain plea robert de conday gave thirty marks of silver that the king would bring him to an accord with the bishop of lincoln Ralph de Brechem gave a hawk that the king would protect him, and this is a very frequent reason for payments. John, son of Ordgar, gave a Norway hawk to have the king's request to the king of Norway to let him have his brother Godard's chattels. Richard de Neville gave twenty palfreys to obtain the king's request to Isolde Bisset that she should take him for a husband robert fitzwalter gave three good palfreys to have the king's letter to roger bertram's mother that she should marry him elling the dean paid one hundred marks that his whore and his children might be let out upon bail the bishop of winchester gave one ton of good wine for his not putting the king in mind to give a girdle to the countess of arbormarle robert de vaux gave five of the best palfreys that the king would hold his tongue about henry Pennell's wife there are in the records of exchequer many other singular instances of a like nature it will however be just to remark that the same ridiculous practices and dangerous abuses prevailed in normandy and probably in all the other states of europe england was not in this respect more barbarous than its neighbors these iniquitous practices of the Norman kings were so well known, that on the death of Hugh Bigode in the reign of Henry the Second, the best and most just of these princes, the eldest son and the widow of his nobleman, came to court and strove by offering large presents to the king, each of them to acquire possession of that rich inheritance. The king was so equitable as to order the cause to be tried by the great council. But in the meantime, he seized all the money and treasure of the deceased. Peter of Blois, a judicious and even elegant writer for that age, gives a pathetic description of the reign of Henry, and he scruples not to complain to the king himself of these abuses. We may judge what the case would be under the government of worse princes. The articles of inquiry concerning the conduct of sheriffs which Henry promulgated in 1170, showed the great power as well as the licentiousness of these officers. Americaments, or fines, for crimes and trespasses, were another considerable branch of the royal revenue. Most crimes were atoned for by money. The fines imposed were not limited by any rule or statute, and frequently occasioned the total ruin of the person. Even for the slightest trespasses. The forest laws, particularly, were a great source of oppression. The king possessed sixty eight forests, thirteen chases, and seven hundred and eighty one parks in different parts of England. And considering the extreme passion of the English and Normans for hunting, these were so many snares laid for the people, by which they were allured into trespasses and brought within the reach of arbitrary and rigorous laws which the king had thought proper to enact by his own authority but the most barefaced acts of tyranny and oppression were practised against the jews who were entirely out of the protection of the law were extremely odious from the bigotry of the people and were abandoned to the immeasurable rapacity of the king and his ministers besides many other indignities to which they were continually exposed it appears that they were once all thrown into prison and the sum of sixty thousand marks extracted for their liberty at another time isaac the jew paid alone five thousand one hundred marks brim three thousand marks Jernett two thousand bennett five hundred At another the Corsia, widow of david the jew of oxford was required to pay six thousand marks and she was delivered over to six of the richest and discreetest jews in england who were to answer for the sum henry the third borrowed five thousand marks from the earl of cornwall and for his repayment consigned over to him all the jews in england the revenue arising from exactions upon this nation was so considerable that there was a particular court of exchequer set apart for managing it we may judge concerning the low state of commerce among the english when the jews notwithstanding these oppressions could still find their account in trading among them and lending them money and as the improvements of agriculture were also much checked by the immense possessions of the nobility by the disorders of the time and by the precarious state of feudal property it appears that industry of no kind could then have a place in the kingdom it is asserted by sir harry spelman as an undoubted truth that during the reigns of the first norman princes every edict of the king issued with the consent of his privy council had the full force of law but the barons surely were not so passive as to entrust a power entirely arbitrary and despotic into the hands of the sovereign it only appears that the constitution had not fixed any precise boundaries to the royal power that the right of issuing proclamations on any emergence and of exacting obedience to them a right which is always supposed inherent in the crown is very difficult to be distinguished from a legislative authority that the extreme imperfection of the ancient laws and the sudden exigencies which often occurred in such turbulent governments obliged the prince to exert frequently the latent powers of his prerogative that he naturally proceeded from the acquiescence of the people to assume in many particulars of moment an authority from which he had excluded himself by express statutes charters or concessions and which was in the main repugnant to the general genius of the constitution and that the lives the personal liberty and the property of all his subjects were less secured by law against the exertion of his arbitrary authority than by the independent power and private connections of each individual it appears from the great charter itself that not only john a tyrannical prince and richard a violent one but their father henry under whose reign the prevalence of gross abuses is the least to be suspected were accustomed from their sole authority without process of law to imprison banish and attain the freemen of their kingdom a great baron in ancient times considered himself as a kind of sovereign within his territory and was attended by courtiers and dependents more zealously attached to him than the ministers of state and the great officers were commonly to their sovereign he often maintained in his court the parade of royalty by establishing a justiciary constable marshal chamberlain seneschal and chancellor and assigning to each of these officers a separate province and command he was usually very assiduous in exercising his jurisdiction and took such delight in that image of sovereignty that it was found necessary to restrain his activity and prohibit him by law from holding courts too frequently it is not to be doubted but the example set him by the prince of a mercenary and sordid extortion would be faithfully copied and that all his good and bad offices his justice and injustice were equally put to sale he had the power with the king's consent to exact tallages even from the free citizens who lived within his barony and as his necessities made him rapacious his authority was usually found to be more oppressive and tyrannical than that of the sovereign he was ever engaged in hereditary or personal animosities or confederacies with his neighbors and often gave protection to all desperate adventurers and criminals who could be useful in serving his violent purposes he was able alone in times of tranquillity to obstruct the execution of justice within his territories and by combining with a few malcontent barons of high rank and power he could throw the state into convulsions and on the whole though the royal authority was confined within bounds and often within very narrow ones yet the check was irregular and frequently the source of great disorders nor was it derived from the liberty of the people but from the military power of many petty tyrants who were equally dangerous to the prince and oppressive to the subject the power of the church was another rampart against royal authority but this defence was also the cause of many mischiefs and inconveniences the dignified clergy perhaps were not so prone to immediate violence as the barons but as they pretended to a total independence on the state and could always cover themselves with the appearances of religion they proved in one respect an obstruction to the settlement of the kingdom and to the regular execution of the laws the policy of the conqueror was in this particular liable to some exception he augmented the superstitious veneration for rome to which that age was so much inclined and he broke those bands of connection which in the saxon times had preserved a union between the lay and the clerical orders he prohibited the bishops from sitting in the county courts he allowed ecclesiastical causes to be tried in spiritual courts only and he so much exalted the power of the clergy that of sixty thousand two hundred and fifteen knights fees into which he divided england he placed no less than twenty eight thousand and fifteen under the church the right of primogeniture was introduced with the feudal law an institution which is hurtful by producing and maintaining an unequal division of private property but is advantageous in another respect by accustoming the people to a preference in favor of the eldest son and thereby preventing a partition or disputed succession in the monarchy the normans introduced the use of surnames which tend to preserve the knowledge of families and pedigrees. They abolished none of the old, absurd methods of trial by the cross or ordeal, and they added a new absurdity, the trial by single combat, which became a regular part of jurisprudence and was conducted with all order, method, devotion, and solemnity imaginable. The ideas of chivalry also seem to have been imported by the Normans, no traces of those fantastic notions are to be found among the plain and rustic saxons the feudal institutions by raising the military tenets to a kind of sovereign dignity by rendering personal strength and valor requisite and by making every knight and baron his own protector and adventurer begat that material pride and sense of honor which being cultivated and embellished by the poets and romance writers of the age ended in chivalry the virtuous knight fought not only in his own quarrel but in that of the innocent of the helpless and above all of the fair whom he supposed to be forever ever under the guardianship of his valiant arm the uncourteous knight who from his castle exercised robbery on travellers and committed violence on virgins was the object of his perpetual indignation and he put him to death without scruple or trial or appeal whenever he met with him the great independence of men made personal honor and fidelity the chief tie among them and rendered it the capital virtue of every true knight or genuine professor of chivalry the solemnities of single combat as established by law banished the notion of everything unfair or unequal in encounters and maintained an appearance of courtesy between the combatants till the moment of their engagement the credulity of the age grafted on this stock the notions of giants enchanters dragons spells and a thousand wonders which still multiplied during the times of the crusades when men returning from so great a distance used the liberty of imposing every fiction on their believing audience these ideas of chivalry infected the writings conversation and behaviour of men during some ages and even after they were in a great measure banished by the revival of learning they left modern gallantry and the point of honour which still maintain their influence and are the genuine offspring of those ancient affectation the concession of the great charter or rather its full establishment for there was a considerable interval of time between the one and the other gave rise by degrees to a new species of government and introduced some order and justice into the administration the ensuing scenes of our history are therefore somewhat different from the preceding yet the great charter contained no establishment of new courts magistrates or senates nor abolition of the old it introduced no new distribution of the powers of the commonwealth and no innovation in the political or public law of the kingdom it only guarded and that merely by verbal clauses against such tyrannical practices as are incompatible with civilized government and if they become very frequent are incompatible with all government the barbarous license of the kings and perhaps of the nobles was thenceforth somewhat more restrained men acquired some more security for their property and their liberties and government approached a little nearer to that end for which it was originally instituted the distribution of justice and the equal protection of the citizens acts of violence and iniquity in the crown which before were only deemed injurious to individuals and were hazardous chiefly in proportion to the number, power, and dignity of the persons affected by them, were now regarded in some degree as public injuries and as infringements of a charter calculated for general security and Thus the establishment of the great charter, without seeming anywise to innovate in the distribution of political power, became a kind of epoch in the constitution End of section fifty six End of volume one a of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of Sixteen eighty eight by David Hume. Recording by Richard Carpenter.